Our scripture reading today comes from Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, especially this passage, as always, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds, that you would help us to see Jesus in this text, because this is what the scriptures are about. They're about your son. So would you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, turn our hearts once again to your son, that we may see him, be enamored with him, be drawn to him, to love him, and to serve him. So would you do that for our joy and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've reached the end of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the end of our series, The City of God. And Lord willing, next week we're going to start a new series in the book of 1 Peter. So I would encourage you to carve out about 20 minutes, if you can do that this week, and read the book of 1 Peter in one sitting. I think it takes about 20 or 25 minutes, maybe even less. So I would encourage you to do that this week, to start preparing your heart to hear God's word as we go through 1 Peter in the coming months. Maybe you've heard the expression, jump the shark. It's a phrase that was originally used to denote the tipping point at which a TV series is deemed by viewers to have passed its peak, or it has introduced plot twists that are logically inconsistent in terms of everything that has preceded them. Once a television show has jumped the shark, the viewer senses a noticeable decline in quality or they feel the show has undergone too many changes to retain its original charm. The term jump the shark has now evolved to to describe other areas of pop culture so that people and actors and authors seem to lose their edge and they're on an obvious decline. So where did the phrase jump the shark originate? The term comes from a Happy Days episode centering around Arthur Fonzarelli, also known as Fonzie, also known as the Fonz. Remember Fonzie? Fonzie was the cool womanizer who could woo all the ladies with his love and good looks. Fonzie would take your girl right out of your arms just by looking at her. I mean, he was that cool, straight out of your arms into the arms of the Fonz. Well, there's an episode of Happy Days where the Fonz is water skiing in the ocean with perfect hair and wearing his leather jacket, and he jumps over a shark in the ocean as he's water skiing. So the Fonz is water skiing in the ocean. He sees this shark fin. And the viewer is terrified because we think this is the point when Fonzie is going to die. He's going to be eaten by this shark. And what does Fonzie do? He does what only the Fonz could do. He jumps over the shark. Hence the expression, jump the shark. That episode was the beginning of the end for Happy Days. That was the moment when Happy Days was about to experience the sad days of cancellation. I mean, who water skis in a leather jacket? Only the Fonz. 
But what does jumping the shark have to do with the book of Nehemiah? On the surface, it seems like Nehemiah is jumping the shark because of how his book ends. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book in the Hebrew Bible. We break them up in our English Bibles. They belong together. And Ezra and Nehemiah started off great. The people were in exile. The Israelites were in exile in Babylon because they had turned away from Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. They did not love him. They went after other gods. And so he said, he promised them he would send them to exile if they did that. So they're in exile in Babylon. The Persians come along and and defeat the Babylonians, so the Persians are now in control. And Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem so they could rebuild the temple and restore the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, the sovereign Lord. This happened under Ezra's leadership. That's what we saw in the book of Ezra. In time, Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem and he led the nation in the rebuilding of the city walls that surrounded Jerusalem. We saw several weeks ago and in the last few months that the walls were completed in 52 days and there was this big celebration that we saw last week in chapters 11 and 12 and the first three chapters of verse 13. The Israelites were so full of joy that they sounded the loud note of worship and their worship was heard far away, the text tells us. But Nehemiah does not end his narrative there. He could have ended on the high note. He could have ended on the loud note of worship. He could have ended his story with that big party Israel had where their worship caused their neighbors to call the police on them because it was so loud. But instead, Nehemiah ends on what on the surface looks like a sour note. On the surface, it looks like Nehemiah has killed the ending to his book. But as we'll see today, it's not a sour note that Nehemiah ends on, but it's a sober note. Nehemiah doesn't end on a sour note. He ends this book on a sober note. And stay tuned to see why Nehemiah ends his story this way. It looks like Nehemiah has jumped the shark. But how he ends the book of Ezra and Nehemiah very well could be a means of grace in your life and in the life of this church. Our big idea today is something you've heard me say numerous times. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That comes from Puritan pastor John Owen's book, which was released in 1656. And it was released with this magnificent title, The Mortification of Sin in Believers, The Necessity, Nature, and Means of It, with a Resolution of Sundry Cases of Conscience Thereunto Belonging. Great title. You wonder why my sermon titles are strange? You can blame it on the Puritans. I love them. Well, Nehemiah 13 is all about being reminded that we must always guard our hearts, that we must always be killing sin. In this chapter, we'll see a reminder that the people of God must continually be killing sin or they will be killed by sin. Compromise and corruption and contamination by the world and sin They are ever-present threats to the life of the church. But understand this, Grace. Sin does not come to us as a murderer. 
Sin does not approach us as a killer in a horror movie with a bloody knife. Sin does not come to us like Jason Voorhees out of Friday the 13th. Sin does not approach us like a Middle Eastern terrorist, like the Taliban. No, sin does not approach us like a monster from a sci-fi movie. Sin approaches us as a lover. Sin comes to us all dolled up and dressed up and looking good and it makes sweet promises to us. Sin comes like the fawns to woo us away from our first love, our wonderful redeemer, Jesus. Sin comes to draw our affections away from Jesus. Sin seduces us. Sin lies. Sin deceives, and therefore it needs to be killed. That's what Nehemiah is saying to God's people as he closes out his book. Before we get into the exposition, let me make a plug for one of our Grace Seminary classes that start next week. Grace Seminary are classes where we teach on the Bible and books about the Bible to teach you theology, teach you truths about discipleship so that you can go learn and teach and disciple others. And one of those classes will be taught by Kurt Mason. He's teaching out of a book called License to Kill. A Field Manual for Mortifying Sin. This book by author Brian Hedges is a great summary of John Owen's book. It's much easier to read than John Owen's book. And since you struggle with sin, and I know you do, because you're just like me, I would encourage you to take this class. It starts next week during this hour in the 1030 hour in room 108, right through those doors over there. So sign up, call or email the church this week and tell us you'd like to take the class because it might get too big and we might need to move it. So there's a little plug for an excellent book on what it means to kill sin, what we're talking about today. Okay, back to Nehemiah. Notice first two verses. Look at Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44. It says, on that day. Now look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse one. It also says, on that day. This is the day of covenant renewal that we saw in Nehemiah chapters nine through 12. But now look at Nehemiah 13, four. It says, now before this, What Nehemiah is doing in the rest of chapter 13 is telling us what happened before the covenant renewal and the dedication of the wall in chapters 9 through 12. In other words, Nehemiah is telling us here in the rest of chapter 13 about what was happening before revival broke out and the people rebuilt the city walls. So Nehemiah ends his book by going back in time to explain what was happening before and while they were rebuilding the city walls. Instead of ending on a high note, instead of ending on the loud note of worship that we saw in verse 43 of chapter 12, Nehemiah goes back in time and reminds his readers of some of the situations that were occurring as he arrived in Jerusalem, as he started building, and as he was finishing the city walls. And what was happening in Israel when Nehemiah first arrived? We saw these things in Ezra chapter 10. There was widespread contamination and corruption 
and compromise among the people of God. The people of God were not being the people of God, the city of God. Look at verses 4 through 9 first. Hear the word of the Lord. Now before this, that's before the great covenant renewal of chapters 9 through 12, He's going back in time. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So Eliashib the priest had charge over the chambers of the temple where they would store all the gifts and the grain and the wine and the fruit, etc. that they gave to the work of God that was happening in the temple where they worshiped the Lord. Then Eliashib one day decides to go against scripture. He's a priest, but he's gonna go against scripture and hook his cousin Tobiah up with a sweet new crib. He actually converts one of the temple chambers into a man cave for Tobiah. It was like Eliashib the priest was on an episode of Design Star or one of those other design shows on HGTV. But notice the danger of compromise here. Eliashib the priest was related to Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah? He's one of Nehemiah's enemies that we encountered earlier in the book. And here we have a priest, Eliashib, who lets blood be thicker than covenant. He lets blood be thicker than covenant. He lets his relationship with Tobiah, one of his relatives, take precedence over his relationship with his God. For Eliashib, pleasing man mattered more than pleasing God. He was a lover of the approval of man instead of being enamored with the fact that God gave approval of him because of sacrificial atonement, which was obviously all pointing towards Jesus. All of this took place, of course, while Nehemiah took a trip, he says, to to see King Artaxerxes. And when Nehemiah returned, well, Nehemiah went ballistic. He got angry and threw all of Tobiah's furniture out onto the street. So the street was littered with tables, a dartboard, a TV, a mattress, some chairs, a grill, a pinball machine, some weights, all the things that you would find in a man cave. And then Nehemiah brought in a cleaning crew, he says, that had some Clorox bleach and some Febreze, people who knew the book of Leviticus, and it was turned back into a temple storage room. Because if you're going to be storing your grain in a former man cave, you want somebody to come through there with Clorox and Febreze, right? I mean, if if a bachelor's pad is where you're going to store your food, you want to make sure that place is cleaned up. And that's what Nehemiah does here. And all of this is a picture 
of the disciples' need to never give up the fight against sin and corruption and compromise and contamination by the world. John Owen said that the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Grace, the Christian life is a killing spree. We're on a daily killing spree. We are to never stop nor tire from killing sin. So don't pamper your sin. Hate it. Fight it. Kill it with the word of God and by the power of the spirit of God. Kill sin by believing the promises of God. Kill sin by treasuring Jesus. Kill sin by diving deep into the ocean of the gospel. Kill sin by resting in God's love for you, a sinner. And the sin of Eliashib and Tobiah had to be killed and dealt with severely. It called for violence and not gentleness. It called for killing and not coddling. And that's why Nehemiah acted the way he did. And oh, how grace would change if we all had Nehemiah's hatred for sin. And oh, how my life would change if I had Nehemiah's hatred for sin. Because I got to tell you, I had a rough week. You know, and I knew I'm preaching on killing sin, and all week long I'm like, I'm not killing sin, and I gotta get up and preach about killing sin. And so my record this week stinks. It's like two wins and 10 million losses. I wish I could stand before you and say, I killed 10 million sins this week, and a couple got through the cracks. But I'm afraid as I stand before you, my record is eh, two wins, 10 million losses. That's the joy of preaching. You just gotta expose yourself and keep it real. But I stand before you the same way that you sit if you're a Christian, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. But I got to tell you, I was a little bit miserable this morning thinking, oh, God, I got to get up and talk about killing sin and I haven't been doing it. And I had to rehearse the gospel. So I had to rehearse the gospel. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's not about what I do. It's all about what Jesus has already done for me. Well, Nehemiah's spring cleaning of the nation is far from over. Look at verses 10 through 14. And I tell you I'm a sinner because I don't want to be on a pedestal. I read somewhere this week, it said, we, we put a pastor up on a stage, elevated from people behind a pulpit, we let him speak, and then we expect him to be humble. I'm, I'm trying to be humble and keep it real. I'm a sinner just like you. But I have a great Savior who's greater than my sin. We're all in this together. All right, look at verses 10 through 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers 
over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mattaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." So Nehemiah got wind that people weren't giving of their tithes and offerings to support the Levites. So the Levites were going out and having to get second jobs to make ends meet. So Nehemiah confronted the officials and he set them in place to receive the goods and the tithes and the offerings from the people. So the people brought their tithes and offerings that they had been negligent in and then Nehemiah set up reliable men who would be in charge of distributing all of these goods to the Levites who lived at the temple. So basically, this is teaching us to fight the sin of hoarding our own resources so that the church can do what it's trying to do because we have an electric bill to pay here and it takes money to cover all that we do. And that's why it's important that we all fight the urge to hoard our resources and to hang on to our resources and to fight the urge to never give to the work of the kingdom of God here. Well, then Nehemiah prays what looks like on the surface at the end of this section to be a self-righteous prayer, but it's not. The people had neglected to support their ministers and pastors, and they were disobeying Numbers 18, verses 21 through 24, which called them to take care of the Levites, to take care of the priests. But then Nehemiah prays, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. It's not a self-righteous prayer that Nehemiah is praying here. Nehemiah is asking God not to wipe out his faithful deeds or his good deeds. The Hebrew word here for good deeds is the plural form of that same Hebrew word that you've heard me mention time and time again, the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated as loyal covenant love or steadfast love. It's the word that's used when it says the steadfast love of the Lord is never ending. This is the plural form of that word. So what Nehemiah is doing is calling the nation out on their sin of neglecting to provide for the Levites, and it's all due to his covenant commitment to Yahweh, his faithfulness to Yahweh, his love for Yahweh. In other words, Nehemiah is being faithful to the Lord. It's loving It's good for Nehemiah to remind the nation of their covenant commitment to take care of the Levites, their their pastors, and their shepherds. It's good and it's a loving thing to be reminded by your pastors and elders to continue giving faithfully for the work of God here at Grace. See, Nehemiah's love for Yahweh and his love for his kingdom drove him to call out these Israelites who were not giving, to call out these Israelites who had believed the lie of sin, that it was better to hoard their resources than to give them away and follow God's commands. It's another reminder to all of us, to all of God's people, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin promised these Israelites a better life if they hoarded their resources and did not give to the work of God. So they turned away from Yahweh in this moment. They fell out of love with their Lord, if you will. They were seduced by sin. But remember, sin does not come to us as a murderer. 
Sin does not approach us as a killer in a horror movie with a bloody knife. Sin doesn't come to us like Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If it did, we would run. But that's not how sin comes to us. Sin does not approach us like a Middle Eastern terrorist. Sin does not approach us like a monster from a sci-fi movie. Sin does not come to us like the smoke monster from Lost. No, sin approaches us as a lover. Sin comes to us all dolled up and dressed up and looking good and it makes sweet promises to us. Sin comes like the fawns. Arthur Fonzarelli, to woo us away from our first love, our wonderful redeemer, Jesus. Sin comes to draw our affections away from Jesus. Sin seduces us. Sin lies. Sin deceives, and therefore it needs to be killed. Well, so far, it looks like we're ending on a sour note, Nehemiah. You throw a man's couches out on the street. You destroy his man cave. You call the nation to the carpet over not giving to the church. Not exactly the best way to end a book. Or is it? Well, the sour note, seemingly sour note continues, but I'll argue at the end of this sermon that it's not actually ending on a sour note, it's ending on a sober one. So look at verses 15 to 22 with me. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Notice in verse 15, it says again, in those days. So Nehemiah is going back in time once again to describe life in Israel before the great covenant renewal of chapters 9 through 12. And the problem, the sin, the corruption that got Nehemiah so worked up and that needed to be put to death by the nation concerned the Sabbath day. 
God gave Israel the Sabbath from Friday evening at sundown to Saturday evening at sundown to rest and to relax and to enjoy God's blessings and to trust him to provide. God did not want his people working seven days a week because God's not a workaholic. God values rest. So much so that he gave us one day a week to cease from work so that we could worship him and rest and do acts of mercy for other people. So the problem here is twofold. One, the Israelites were working on the Sabbath, bringing in grain, grapes, figs, etc., and then they were selling these items, trying to make more money, trying to earn a buck. The second thing is that the Tyrians who were pagans and did not give a rip about Yahweh, Israel's God, and did not give a rip about Yahweh's law. They were selling food to the Israelites in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and the Israelites were buying from them. Notice that Nehemiah rebukes them, but his rebuke is very theological. It's rooted in scripture. He reminds them in verses 17 through 18 that they're about to be placed back under Yahweh's anger and that they might end up in exile again. And so Nehemiah calls it an evil thing that they have done. So what does Nehemiah do now? He starts killing sin because Nehemiah knows that if he doesn't, then sin will be killing the city of God. So on Friday evening at sundown, Nehemiah shuts the gates of the city, sets guards at the gate, and then those who think lightly of God's word and don't value the Ten Commandments, his law, his perfect law, which says, do no work on the Sabbath, rest, those people who despise that law come up and hang around the gates, and what does Nehemiah do? He gives them this warning. If I see you here again, I'm gonna lay hands on you. Now, you know that's the politically correct way of saying that, right? You get the idea, he's gonna lay hands on them. That means he will rough them up if necessary. That means he will feed them a knuckle sandwich for dinner. If they want to buy food so bad on the Sabbath, Nehemiah is offering to deliver knuckle sandwiches to their house for dinner. There is no way that Nehemiah is going to let Israel disobey because Nehemiah does not want to go back into exile. He will resort to force if he must. Nehemiah's actions remind us to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin promised these Israelites a better life if they worked harder and did not take a day of rest as prescribed in God's word. So they turned away from Yahweh. They fell out of love with their Lord in this moment. They were seduced by sin. Remember, sin does not come to us as a murderer. Sin does not come to us and approach us as a killer in a movie with a bloody knife. Sin does not come to us like Michael Myers from Halloween. Sin doesn't start that music so we know, here comes Michael Myers, I gotta run. Sin doesn't do that. Sin does not approach us as a Middle Eastern terrorist. Sin doesn't show up like ISIS and say, I'm here to behead you. No, sin doesn't do that. It doesn't approach us as a monster from a sci-fi movie. Sin approaches us as a lover. Sin comes to us all dolled up and dressed up and looking good and it makes sweet 
promises to us. Sin comes to woo us away from our first love, our wonderful redeemer, Jesus. Sin comes like Arthur Fonzarelli, Fonzie, the Fonz, to draw our affections away from Jesus. Sin seduces us. Sin lies. Sin deceives, and therefore it needs to be killed. Well, if you haven't got the picture yet that Nehemiah takes his relationship with Yahweh seriously, then buckle your seatbelt because he's about to show us what church discipline looked like in the fifth century BC. Nehemiah is about to go UFC on some people. Nehemiah is about to show someone his skills in being a mixed martial artist. Nehemiah is about to do church discipline, not in the sanctuary, but in the octagon. Look at verse 23. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Notice in verse 23, we have that same phrase again. It says, in those days. So Nehemiah is once again going back in time to describe what life was like in Israel before he returned and started building the city walls. This is what life was like before the great covenant renewal of chapters 9 through 12. And the sin that needed to be killed here was intermarriage with the pagan nations, which was forbidden by God's law. In his word, God said, you're only to marry Israelites. You don't go marry those foreign women because they'll pull your heart away from me. We saw this same sin in Ezra chapter 10. And Nehemiah gets really worked up about this one. He not only confronts those who have broken God's laws, but he actually calls down covenant curses on them. The covenant curses found in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. Nehemiah calls down on them, may you be covered with boils. May mildew overtake your house. May wild beasts eat you and consume you. And then he goes a step further and he beat some of them up and he pulled out their hair. He pulled no punches and he pulled out hair. 
Not exactly how you want your pastor to treat you at a counseling session. What Nehemiah does here is church discipline, old school. And verse 28 says that he chased one of the compromisers away. He actually chased a guy down the street. How would you like to get chased down the street by a pastor after a counseling session? I can see it on some of your faces. This passage is making you very uncomfortable. What in the world do you do with this? You may be thinking, how dare Nehemiah beat people up and pull out their hair and chase them down the street? How dare you do this? You're not acting like a Christian, Nehemiah. That's not very loving, Nehemiah. Some people might want to say, Nehemiah, that's not how Christians act. And I think Nehemiah would say, well, they do now. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes extreme situations call for extreme measures. And that flies in the face of our keep it safe, don't rock the boat, who are you to call me out on sin society that we live in? And sadly, it has crept into the church. But let me say this, the leaders of this church would never beat you up or pull out your hair or chase you down the street. Or I don't think we would. Maybe I shouldn't promise you that. I told you I'm a sinner. I can't guarantee that I won't do that. But we will confront you when there is blatant, unrepentant sin. And we do that because Jesus told us to do that in Matthew chapter 18. It's called church discipline. But we love you enough to get in your face humbly and graciously and lovingly when you are in hardened, unrepentant sin, and we will call you to come back to your first love, Jesus. But we're talking hardened, unrepentant sin, the kind where you say, I know God's word says that, but I'm not gonna do it. I know I should change, but I'm not gonna do it. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about hardened, unrepentant, put your feet in and say, I'm not budging kind of sin. This doesn't mean that as Christians, we're supposed to run around and be the fruit police. We're not called to see if the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in people's lives. Some Christians do that. Woo, 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 pull over. Let me see your Christian identification. Hmm, I don't see any fruit, brother. Are you producing fruit? I don't see any. Are you saved? Have you been patient? Have you been kind? How's your joy level? I'm gonna have to write you a ticket for posing as a Christian because clearly you aren't one. We're not called to do that. And that's not what Nehemiah is doing here. We're not called to run around and be kingdom monitors as Mike Iaconelli said. He said, we decide to make grace more responsible by being self-appointed kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out, which as I understand it, are who the kingdom of God is supposed to include. But some Christians run around like self-appointed kingdom monitors. How are you doing? Reading the Bible enough? Praying enough? Giving enough? I have doubts about you, sister. I don't think you're saved. No, we're not called to do that. That's not what Nehemiah is doing here. We're not called to be spiritual doctors running around checking everyone's spiritual temperature. Do you love Jesus? Is your passion for him hot enough? Let me feel your forehead. Yep, as I suspected, ice cold, frozen. You watched that Frozen movie and you let Jesus go, didn't you? That's what I thought. 
I'm going to write you a prescription for how you can get saved because clearly you're not a Christian. We're not called to do that, Grace. We're not called to be the fruit police. We're not called to be kingdom monitors. We're not called to be spiritual doctors. You know why? Because we all struggle with sin every single day. Every single one of us, every single day, looks at sin, looks at Jesus, and looks at Jesus and says, no, thank you, I want sin. We do that every single day. That's why we're not called to be kingdom monitors because we choose sin multiple times every single day over Jesus, the one who loves us unconditionally. On any given day, Grace, my passion for Jesus might be white hot or seemingly non-existent. So the discipline being described here in Nehemiah 13 is not for our constant daily struggles with indwelling sin that we all struggle with because we all struggle with indwelling sin every single day. And if you don't believe me, drive around in the roundabouts for about three minutes and I guarantee you, your indwelling sin will rise up in them. That's all you gotta do. I'm not gonna make it complicated for you, okay? Leave the church, just keep doing circles in the roundabout and I guarantee you indwelling sin will rise up like a lion. We're talking about getting to a point where the heart is hardened to Jesus, hardened to his love. We're talking about someone who flat out refuses to repent. They refuse to change. For instance, if someone leaves their spouse for another lover and they refuse to kill that sin and they refuse to leave their new lover and they refuse to return home to their spouse and they refuse to restore their marriage if something like that happens then there are steps that the leadership the elders and the pastors will take to see restoration happen and restoration to Jesus your first love for God's glory that's the goal of church discipline But the whole point of Nehemiah 13 isn't that we become the fruit police or we become kingdom monitors or we become spiritual doctors. The point of Nehemiah chapter 13 is this. Don't flirt with sin. Compromise is just around the corner. Contamination by the world is subtle. Indwelling sin still remains in you, Christian. So guard your heart. Watch out for false lovers. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And instead of ending the book on a high note of covenant renewal, instead of ending his book on the loud note of worship that we saw in Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 43, instead Nehemiah goes back in time to tell stories of compromise and contamination by the world. Now why? Why end it on a sour note, Nehemiah? You had such a great story going and now you go and jump the shark. You killed the ending, bro. You ruined the ending, Nehemiah. It was so great in chapters 9 through 12. There was a party. They ate steak and drank wine. Amen. Hallelujah. They renewed the covenant with their Lord. Their worship was so loud, their neighbors had to call the police on them. So why go back and tell your audience about a sad, dark period in our history? Why end on a sour note, Nehemiah? But the reality is this. Nehemiah doesn't end the book on a sour note. 
he ends the book on a sober note. He wants every disciple, whoever reads this book, to know that compromise and contamination and sin are always a possibility for the people of God. Nehemiah is telling the people of God, we could end up here again. This could be us. We could end up hardened to the Lord. We could get contaminated by the world. We could end up in exile. We could give in to the subtleties of sin. Therefore, be sobered by this church. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I don't think Nehemiah jumped the shark. I don't think he ruined his story. I don't think he killed the ending. I think his book was crafted superbly. You know why? Because it reminds me of Jesus. It reminds me that the people of God, the city of God, the church has always failed. The ending of Nehemiah makes me look forward to that Israelite, Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept the law and never failed the test. The one who kept the covenant faithfully. The one who did what Adam and Israel could not do. No, Nehemiah, you didn't jump the shark because you made us think about Jesus, who never sinned and never disobeyed, never was contaminated by the world. You made us think of Jesus who obeyed the law for us. You made us think of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, who died in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. You made us think of Jesus who will return one day to the earth to set up his kingdom and will rule from the new Jerusalem, the city of God. No, Nehemiah, you didn't jump the shark. You just reminded us once again that sin does not come to us as a murderer. That sin does not approach us as a killer in a horror movie with a bloody knife. That sin does not approach us as a Middle Eastern terrorist. That sin does not approach us as a monster from a sci-fi movie. Nehemiah, you reminded us that sin approaches us as a lover. That it comes to us all dolled up and dressed up, looking good and making sweet promises to us. You reminded us that sin comes to woo us away from our wonderful Redeemer, our first love, Jesus. Nehemiah, you reminded us that sin comes in like the fawns to draw our affections away from Jesus. Sin seduces us. You reminded us of that, Nehemiah, that sin lies, that sin deceives, and therefore it needs to be killed. And the only way that you or I will ever kill sin and avoid contamination by the world The only way we'll ever do that is by delighting in the beauty of the gospel, by being overwhelmed at Jesus' love for you, by being overwhelmed that Jesus loves you, Christian, even though you sin 10 million times or more this week, depending on who you are, and that Jesus still loves you. He saw what you did. He saw what you did. He knows what you thought about that person. Whoever that person was that you thought something bad against this week and you know you all did it, And Jesus loves you. The only way you'll ever kill sin is by delighting in the fact that even though you don't kill sin very well, Jesus still loves you. 
by being overwhelmed that he rejoices over you with great joy, by being overwhelmed with the fact that you sit forever under the banner of his love, by being overwhelmed that Jesus lived the life that you could never live, that he died the death that you deserve, that God raised him from the dead, and that because you believe in him by faith, that he covers you with his righteousness. You, Christian, are now in union with him, dwelling on that, thinking on that, preaching that to yourself, that I am in union with him. That will enable you to kill sin. So let's close this sermon and close this sermon series out with a quote by another Puritan, Walter Marshall, born in 1628, died in 1680, in his book, which is the best book on sanctification, but make sure you get the one, if you pick it up, that's put into more uh, common vernacular because the old version is really hard to understand. His book, and I highly recommend it to you, but get the updated version, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. Growing in holiness by living in union with Christ. This is what Walter Marshall says. You cannot love God if you are under the continual secret suspicion that, you, that he is really your enemy. You cannot love God if you think he condemns you and hates you. Your love for God must be won and drawn out by your understanding of God's love and goodness towards you. You simply cannot love God unless you know and understand how much he loves you. When you love him, it is because you see that he has been so good to you. God does not drive you along with whips and terrors or by the rod of the schoolmaster of the law. Rather, he leads you and draws you to walk in his ways by pleasant attractions. The love of Christ is the greatest and most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living. The love of Christ is the most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living, to encourage you to kill sin. The love of Christ, God's love for you, a sinner who sins 10 million times a week, God's love for you is the greatest and the most pleasant attraction to encourage you to godly living, that you know your sin, but you look to Jesus and you're like, you still love me? I've promised 10 million times I'll never do that sin again. And I did it again, and you sure you love me? Yes. Listen, if Jesus walked through these doors right now, he would come up to you and hug you and kiss your neck and say, let's go to Starbucks and get a coffee. And you would be tempted to say, but, but what about what I did last night? But what about yesterday? It's like, I don't even know that. Come. Do you know that he loves you today? Have you personalized the gospel? He loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Have you personalized it? He loves you right where you are and he knows what you did yesterday. He knows what you said to your kids this morning as you got them ready for church. He loves you and that should encourage you to kill sin. May Jesus draw us out of the arms of sin into his loving arms. May we leave behind all those lovers that promised to us so much and may we return once again to our first love, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love that you showed at the cross and through the life, death, and resurrection of your son. Because this passage is us, God. We've been exposed by your law as the sinners that we are. 
But now we rejoice in the gospel that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you for loving us when we choose other lovers every single day. May we be drawn out by your great steadfast love for us that we would be killing sin. Would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit? For your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.